Good morning. We are really blessed to have Paul Barker with us today. Many of us remember Paul. You can give, let's give him a round of applause. We love you, Paul. Paul and Alita have been married 40 years now. I know. I know. I have you frozen in time from when I remember when I see you last. And so it's, it's amazing to see how the faithfulness of God in all these years and great things that have happened. Nine grandchildren? That's amazing. Praise God. We just are so blessed for you. Uh, Paul is the chief operating officer of uh, Every Nation Ministries now, which is comprised of about 80 churches around the world doing training and campus ministries too. 80 nations, excuse me, 80 nations, 1,000 churches, and it's and campus ministries and doing training for leaders and resources for churches and growth and wonderful things happening. And so we are really blessed to see God's hand of blessing on you and to have you with us today. Can we welcome Paul again as he comes? Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it. This is for you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good to see everybody. Wow. It's been a long time, 20 years since I was here last. 20 years, yes. My family, we moved back to St. Louis. My wife and I are originally from St. Louis, but we had been pastoring in the South. And we moved back in 1990 to St. Louis. The ministry we'd been a part of had dissolved and we were trying to find our way. We had some things to, we had planned to do here in St. Louis, and those fell apart also. And I found myself with four small children, without a job, and in a, a real desperate situation, really lost in many ways. And the New Covenant family took me in. Mike and Steve adopted me uh, tentatively and probably with deep concerns. I have a vivid memory of the fall of 1991, looking at the possibility of losing our home, wondering where we were heading, and a knock on our door. We lived in Crestwood, and there's Mike Hayden, drove all the way down to Crestwood, and he had a check from New Covenant, from the Benevolence Fund, for $2,000 that saved our life. And made a huge difference and impact in our life. We surfed together for eight years here, and it was some of the most significant time in our life, a real influential time, a forming time in me in many different ways. I had always been a part of organizations that were very missionally oriented, but I knew very little about the church. And in those eight years, I really understood the doctrine of the church and the role of the church. And that's been a significant contribution in what the Lord's done the last 20 years of my life. So I am truly thankful for New Covenant, Mike, Steve, and for those who invested in our life. It's a great honor for me to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. I want to introduce my family. Roy, this is your big cue. There we go. There's me with my beautiful wife, 40 years. This is my next door neighbor, my youngest son, Joseph, and his wife, Lee. Joseph is a marketing consultant. Lee works at our Every Nation office. Our global office is in Nashville, and she's our operations director for Every Nation campus. 
and my, her oldest son, JJ, and then a little fella in the middle is my latest grandson, and he's JoJo. JJ and JoJo. Next slide is my oldest son, Samuel, and his wife, Karen. Samuel's our art director for our global ministry. Karen runs our HR department. And this is Griffin, the taller one, and Benjamin on a mission to subject the world to his will. <laughs> you should have that accomplished in the next few years. <laughs> and they live down the street from us. Next slide. This is my oldest daughter, Katie, and her husband, Ernie. Ernie is a former professional rugby player. He's South African. And they met when my daughter was in South Africa serving in an AIDS orphanage. And they fell in love. That's their five children. Omalimo is the tallest. And then the girl down the bottom is Karen. And then far left is Ezekiel, Isaiah, and then little Adelaide in the middle. Ernie is an evangelism pastor at a large church, one of our churches in Midland, Texas. And then last slide, my baby, Jessica, and her husband, Barry. They've just returned. They've been on the mission field for the last five years in Mumbai, India. Now Barry serves in our Every Nation office as a research assistant for Every Nation Seminary that launches in 2022. So that's my beautiful family. And you know a little bit about me now. Our text for the day is 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it cuts, it divides, it separates the soul and the spirit, and it judges the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. We're thankful that we have need of no man to teach us, for there is an anointing that will teach us all things. Holy Spirit, we look to you this morning. Lead us and guide us in the truth. In Jesus' name. In 1995, Mike and Steve sent my wife and I to England. We were part of a group of churches over there to meet the brothers and to do some ministry. It was a wonderful time. And I remember a lot of things, but I remember for the first time hearing this expression... Someone referring to another person saying, he's out of his depth. Out of his depth. Now, I hadn't heard that expression. It's not too common in America, but it's a fairly common English expression. How many of you are familiar with it? Have you heard the, the phrase, are you out of your depth? Yeah, it means to be in water so deep that you can't swim. And you might drown. 
it's in a situation that you don't have the experience to handle or the knowledge to understand. Have you ever been out of your depth? I think that's why I like that expression so much. It describes my every waking moment. <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation beyond your abilities? Has God ever asked you to do something you feel totally unqualified to do? Have you ever felt out of your depth. If so, I have some good news for you this morning. This seems to be the general testimony of any man or woman that God has ever used. It, they all, the, the, the details are different, but the essence is pretty much the same. God called me to do something great, it was beyond my ability, and in my place of weakness, he met me in power. That's the testimony of every saint in Scripture and throughout church history that has walked with God. He calls us to do something beyond our ability. We become deeply aware of our own deficiencies, our own weakness, and in those places, that's where God meets us. Out the deep end, that's where God is. That's where you meet him. Now, God fills all things, so he's in the shallow end too. But if you want to meet him, you've got to get out in the deep part of the water. And Jesus loves to do this to us, doesn't he? He loves to put us in a place where we are out of our depth because that's where we encounter him. And we find out that there's something that he sovereignly placed in us that we would never have discovered if we hadn't found ourselves in that situation. Are you out of your depth? Since we all agree that this is a fairly regular experience, then the $64,000 question is, how do we survive and thrive when we find ourselves out of our depth? We're going to look at the life of Timothy and the situation where he found himself clearly out of his depth. And we're going to find out what did God say to him in that situation and then apply that to our own life. The context of 1 Timothy is Paul and Timothy have been in Ephesus for a period of time and some call comes, we don't know, through a letter or a personal visit or something. Paul has to leave and go to Macedonia. Trouble probably somewhere. And he leaves Timothy in charge in Ephesus. Now, 
Ephesus was not a church-friendly environment in the first century. Ephesus, probably the third or fourth largest city in the first century world. It was well known as the occult capital of the world. Ephesus, that's where you went to get your potions and amulets and spells and all the magical accoutrement that you needed to practice various forms of occult practice. That's the place that Paul writing to the church in Ephesus reveals to them about the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places in chapter 6 of Ephesians because certainly they knew about that in Ephesus. It was a difficult place and Timothy, Timothy was not your, he wouldn't have been a good action picture hero. He wouldn't have had any of those good lines like go ahead and make my day. He, he struggled with fear and intimidation constantly. We know something about his mom and his grandmother, but nothing about his father. And probably there was a dearth of fatherhood in his life, been raised by strong women. And he, Paul is continually exhorting him, Timothy, don't be afraid don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Resist the spirit of timidity. A fascinating passage in Corinthians, Paul's writing. And you know, the Corinthians, they were troublemakers, right? And, and Paul had sent Timothy there to, on his, he's sending Timothy on his way to get some work done. And he writes in the letter, he says, if Timothy comes... See if you can hear behind the words, the tone. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. For he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so he may return to me. <laughs> Timothy, this sounds a little bit like an overproductive mother sending a note with her little son to camp, right? Timothy is a frail young thing. Please treat him gently. The Corinthians did not heed Paul's advice. Timothy failed, and he had to send Titus, who we don't know much about him, but probably would have been more appropriate in one of those types of movies. Titus goes in and he takes care of business. But Timothy struggled with confidence. And he's in this church in Ephesus. Not only is this a terribly difficult city, demonic forces so prevalent, but there's some problems in the church. Paul writes and said, did not I wrestle with wild beasts at Ephesus? There's a possibility he's referring to the elders in the church. 
It's a tough situation for a guy like Timothy to be stuck in. And Paul gives him three exhortations throughout his letters. He says, command the false teachers. Whoa. Challenge hypocritical liars, Timothy. And how about this one? Confront sinners publicly. This is Timothy's charge. I can picture that day when Paul breaks the news to Timothy, correspondence has come and he's got to leave and says something like, Paul, I got to go to Macedonia. And Timothy probably thinks, great, I'll pack our bags. When do we leave? He said, no, you're staying. <laughs> what? Yeah, and I got a job for you to do terrifying situation do you think Timothy felt out of his depth yeah what did God say to Timothy in this setting many things of course but from this text we're going to look at three things and we're going to just pull out three simple words that'll be easy to remember won't it three simple words to remember when you find yourself out of your depth and the first one is pretty obvious. It's fight. It's fight. Fight the good fight of faith. What's the nature of this battle? It's the battle to believe. That's where the fight is. It's the battle to believe in the midst of a world that is going in a completely opposite direction. Everything in this world tends towards unbelief and doubt and questioning. And Paul says, Timothy, when you find yourself out of your depth, you've got to fight. You've got to fight the good fight of faith. Because our natural bent is always towards unbelief. We wake up in the morning, our natural man tends towards unbelief. And if we don't do something about it, every single day, unbelief will creep in and take over our souls. It's a constant, continual force. I have a friend who's a young man, wore braces five years, common thing for many of us. Five years he had braces, and at the end, Dennis gave him this retainer, said, now you got to wear this every night. But, you know, he was a teenager and didn't like how it felt, so never wore it. Within a year, his teeth were back in the same situation. <laughs> Finally, around 39 or 40, he decided, well, let's try to do it again. So he went back and did it again. And the dentist, orthodontist, said to him at the end, he gave, handed him the retainer and said, the forces that were at work shaping your teeth will be at work in your mouth the rest of your life. If you don't wear this, you'll be back in a few years. And he keeps it in now. Well, what a powerful illustration that is. The forces that want to misshape our life are continually at work. And they will be to the day we die. 
And our only prevention is that faith retainer. You got to put it in every single day. That's why Paul exhorts Timothy constantly, pay attention to the prophetic word. Remember the sacred writings. Fight the good fight of faith every day because the forces of unbelief are pushing on you every day and they will win the battle. Fight the good fight of faith. Our English word fight here is translated from the original text in Greek from a word agon, which referred originally to a place. It's actually the place where the Olympic and the Pythian games were held. And especially it was a place of contest where the wrestling matches would take place. It's a fascinating thing examining the Roman Empire. As it deteriorated, people longed for greater and greater blood sports. The more violent, the better. And the games deteriorated to the point where they created this special arena that was completely sealed. You couldn't get in or out once the door was locked. And they would put two combatants in there and they would chain them together and there was only one rule. Fight or die. Whoever dies loses. And it's a fight to the death. You couldn't get out. You couldn't get unchained. You had to fight or die. That's the picture that Paul is painting for Timothy. We have been placed in a world and we don't get out and we're chained and our only exhortation is you fight or you will die because there is an enemy who is totally committed to our destruction. And until Jesus returns or we go to be with him, the fight is every day. It's unrelenting. And that's the challenge, isn't it? It's the everyday fight. I'm 62. I see a few of you are in my range and maybe a few have passed that range. The challenge, isn't it, to keep going every day, every day. It's real easy to just get tired. This fight, is just, I'm just tired. Author to the Hebrews wrote to a church who had experienced persecution and had come through it with flying colors. That's great. But then it came back, and they weren't doing so well. Because, you know, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. A lot of people started real strong. We know some of them, don't we? It's not how you start. It's how you finish. 
And the author encouraged him, said, don't throw away your confidence. It has great reward. You have need of endurance that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what was promised. He says later in the text, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, not falls back, just shrinks. It's just a little tiny step. It's just not as aggressive today as I was yesterday. It's just I'm a little older now and just a little tired. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But what a great testimony. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Are you fighting the good fight every day? Or have you just gotten tired? Fight the good fight. How do we fight this battle of faith? Brings us to our next single word. It's two words in our English Bible, take hold, but it's one word in the original. So I'm going to use the original, and we're going to use the word seize. Seize. Take hold or seize. It's translated from the original Greek word epilambano, which is one of my favorite New Testament words. It shows up in a lot of really cool places. I love epilambano. It's a very strong, powerful word. It means to seize, to lay hold of, to take possession of. And the word often contains a measure of violence. There's an aggressive tone to this word. It's the word that's used when Jesus snatches Peter when he's drowning. He epilambanoed him. It's the, it's the word used when the soldiers took Simon of Cyrene to, to carry Jesus' cross. They epilambanoed him. They seized him. It's the word that's used when the mob seized Paul during his last visit in Jerusalem. You see, there's a violent sense to the word. It's not a passive, just hoping something will happen. Paul says, take hold of the eternal life. You're not sitting back and waiting, hoping for something to happen, but violently, aggressively taking hold of God's promises. When you're out of your depth... You've got to seize God's promises. No time for a pity party. You've got to take hold of his word. September 4th, 1987, Henry Dempsey was flying a commuter flight from Maine to Boston. Small little tiny plane. He'd been troubled by a noise since the plane had taken off in the back of the plane. And he finally told his co-pilot to take over and he wanted to go inspect it. And as he walked to the back, he realized the entrance, and the entrance of this plane was you went out the back, the, the, the door had not been properly latched. And that's the sound that he'd heard. And so as he went to attend to it, the plane hit a sudden gust and he was thrown violently against the door. The door opened and he fell out. 
Now, the co-pilot saw the light came on in the cockpit. He signaled to the nearest airport, and he also notified the Coast Guard because they were over the Atlantic Ocean. They were 5,000 feet over the ocean. But fortunately, the Coast Guard wasn't needed because Dempsey had the presence of mind as the door opened and there was a ladder, you know, that, that would unfold. He grabbed hold of the rungs of the ladder. And it was 15 minutes for the plane to land. And when he landed, he was face down 12 inches from the tarmac. The emergency medical teams were there waiting. And they, it took them, a whole team, 15 minutes to pry his fingers off of the rung of that ladder. You see, he epilambanoed the ladder. That is a picture of what Paul is exhorting Timothy. Seize, your life depends upon it. Hold on for dear life to God's promises and his word. A few years, a number of years before that, Bud Cowart left the East Coast. This was May 11th, 1932. The Army was experimenting with dirigibles, the airships. And so this was the USS Akron. They were going to take a flight from the East Coast to San Diego. And the dirigible had a fairly uneventful trip. But when they got to San Diego, there were several things that they hadn't factored in. And the weather was working against them. There was problems with the gas, and it was very difficult to moor the dirigible. There was these long ropes that would come from the dirigible that they had dropped, and then they had sailors around who were to get them, and then there were stakes, and they would anchor them and moor them, and the dirigible could come down. So there's about 200 men around holding on to this, and there's a sudden gust of wind, and the dirigible immediately goes up very fast. Most everybody had the presence of mind to drop the ropes. Three held on. One, about 15, 20 feet, he fell, broke his leg. Another one, a little bit farther, he fell and died. But one man, Bud Cowart, it was too late to let go, and he had to hold on. And so crowds began to gather over a two-hour period of time before they got this dirigible under control, and people are just waiting, thinking he's going to fall to his death at any moment. But somehow he keeps holding on. And when they finally bring it down, they realize it's, he'd had the presence of mind to wrap the rope around himself. You can, you can check this and, and see the pictures of it, actually. It's pretty fascinating. When they interviewed him, he said, when I could no longer hold on to the rope, I let the rope hold on to me. Which is a great picture. we got to have that with the epilambano. While we're seizing and we're holding on, God's got his rope around us, and he's holding on to us also. Seize the promises, take hold of eternal life. Well, this is all very 
good, but how do we fight? How do we seize these promises? Brings us to our third and final word, and it's speak. Speak. Now, I understand there's a lot of controversy about this. The words of our mouth, our confession. A lot of groups and organizations that are marginalized and, and they various different terms. Is this the name it and claim it group? Or even more pejoratively, the blab it and grab it group? <laughs> Certainly there are extremes. And we're not talking about that. But the biblical evidence for the power of our words is simply overwhelming. It's just overwhelming. We can start way back in the Old Testament. There was something very significantly different between Joshua and Caleb and the other ten Israelite spies. It was something about what they said. They spoke a good confession. We see it as we carry on throughout the scriptures. The Proverbs, you can't get very far without realizing the power of life and death is in the tongue. Even when we get to Jesus in Mark chapter 11, and I know there are various other things that are going on in this story, but the fact is Jesus said, if you say to this mountain, and he uses the definite article there, it's not just generic mountains. It's this mountain. He's obviously pointing to something tangible that they can see. And if you say, be taken up and cast in the sea, don't doubt in your heart, but believe. Believe what? Believe that what you say will come to pass, it shall be granted. Pretty hard to misinterpret that. Paul, I believed, therefore I spoke. James has this beautiful picture of a giant ship being battered by strong winds, and yet the rudder, the words of the mouth, keeping the ship on course. What a great picture of our life as a ship. We're on a destiny. We're on a destination. We're heading somewhere. And strong winds are trying to blow us off course constantly. What keeps us on course? It's the words of our mouth. It's that rudder of our tongue that keeps us on course. When you find yourself out of your depth, it really matters what you say in those situations. We have to fight, seize, and speak. Now, there are two ways people take this message. Number one, I got to try a whole lot harder. <laughs> Woo, I am coming short. I'm going to get more committed. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do more. I'm going to try harder. And next time I hear that message, I'll be able to lift my head up and say, yes. Well, that's good. If you want to be a Pharisee, that's the path right there. That'll get you there real quickly. 
But th then there's another approach. I've heard this before. I've tried that. You just give up in despair. I've tried so many times. This is where a lot of people are. They've long ceased fighting because the pressure is just too much. Just trying to make it through. Continual pressure beat them down. But there is a third alternative. There is a third alternative. And that's the one that is implied in this text all throughout the scripture, but implied in this text. Paul reminds Timothy here of two historical events. One is most likely his ordination, possibly his baptism. We're not sure. A historical event in his life when he made a good confession. And the other historical event is when the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly according to his human nature, no man ever found himself more out of his depth than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus found himself before Pilate, what did he do? He made the good confession. And Paul is implying, Timothy, there is one who found himself in a much more difficult situation than you find yourself. And that one now lives on the inside of you and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself made the good confession in a desperately difficult situation, you too can do the same thing. Because now our Savior empowers us with his divine life Amen. to fight the good fight, to seize the promises of God and to make the good confession. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are deeply appreciative of your grace. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that lives on the inside of us. Lord, there are those here, I'm certain, who find themselves weary, and I understand. The battle never ceases. The enemy is continually there. And Lord, it's so easy. It's so easy. Just take a little step, just a little shrinking back, just not as strong as I was before. Lord, I pray for those. Thank you for your Holy Spirit at work in their heart. Let there be a new infusion of grace, a new grace of repentance to say, Lord, I want to end strong. And I'm coming back to a strong fight of faith. I'm going to seize your promises make that good confession. Lord, thank you for all of us, your grace empowering us, Lord, to walk this walk of faith in the depth 
of challenges in our life so we can stand before you as the Apostle Paul did at the end of our life and say, I have fought the good fight. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Paul, for that excellent word. Appreciate you. We serve a great king, don't we?